All right, so this morning, we're going to continue in our series entitled Love Builders and Love Busters. And I hope that somewhere along the line during this series that God has done something really awesome and really cool in your life, in you, or maybe through you, to build love and uh, to increase love in your relationships and in your, in your world. And uh, because, uh, you know... God is love, and he wants our relationships to be characterized by love. Listen to how how the Apostle Peter said it. He said, now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart. Isn't that an awesome phrase? He says, love one another deeply from the heart. And when we do that, we reflect the image of Jesus with ever-increasing glory that comes from the Spirit of God. And so in this series, we've been asking this question, what does it mean to love? What does it really look like? What are the things that build up and promote love? And what are the things that, that tear down and, <coughs> excuse me, and bust up love? How do we put hands and feet on this love thing? And, and we've been answering those questions from the love chapter. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And we saw that, first, love is the most excellent way. And then we saw that love is kind, and and love is patient, and that love is not boastful, and it is not proud, and it's not self-seeking, not selfish, because all of those things bust up and hinder the growth of love. And so this week, we're going to focus on something that I think is really unique in this passage of Scripture. It's a little different than all of the other love builders and the other love busters, and it's found in verse 6 of 1 Corinthians 13. So let's look at it. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 6. And it says this, Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. Love buster number three this morning is evil and truth. Today we're talking about evil and truth and their relationship to love. So the Apostle Paul tells these Corinthians believers in Jesus, you know, if you're going to follow the most excellent way, if you're going to do church right, if you're going to do your family right, if you're going to follow the way of love, you must not delight in evil, and you must rejoice with the truth. Now, when you first look at this, you you might wonder, why are these things here? Why are these things in this passage? And and I must admit, as I began studying it, I kind of had that question too, God, why are these things right here? in this passage, because the other love builders and the other love busters seem to me to be um, kind of obvious. I mean, kindness builds up love, right? That's obvious. Patience builds up love. That's obvious. And, and dishonoring others busts up love, and, and pride and boasting busts up love, and selfishness busts up love. Right? We all know that, right? Th- those things seem kind of obvious. But these things here today in our scripture don't seem as obvious. How does delighting in evil bust up love? How does rejoicing with the truth build up love? So those are the questions that we're asking and answering in our message this morning. And so the first thing would be to ask is this. What does it mean to delight in evil? And, And even before that is, what is evil anyway? I mean, when we talk about evil, what do we mean? And in the broadest sense the way theologians define evil and what it is. It's basically this. It's anything that is outside 
the character of God or anything that is outside God's intended order or the way God intended things to be. That's evil. So that's why we often refer to natural disasters as evil. That's why we refer to um, an earthquake that maybe kills people or destroys belongings as evil. Or when a, when a tsunami devastates a region, it's an evil. Or when a hurricane or tornado uh, destroys everything in sight, we say um, that it's an evil. And we rightly say that because it's outside of God's intended order. It's not how God originally created everything to be. God placed Adam and Eve in a perfect paradise. And there were no hurricanes or tsunamis or natural disasters of any kind. And the temperature was perfect all the time. Nobody argued about where the thermostat was set. All right? It was just perfect all the time. But because sin entered the world, all of these evils did as well. And the, the Apostle Paul describes it this way when he's writing to the Roman believers about what happened to the world as a result of the fall, as a result of sin entering the world. He says this, This is Romans chapter 8, starting at verse 20. He says, For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Bondage to decay. Just like our bodies, because of sin in the world, our bodies age and they decay and eventually die. So the world is in the same state. It's decaying. It's growing old. And then also there's another kind of evil in the world that we call sin or evil behavior. Any behavior or character trait within humanity that, that is against God's character is evil. So we got to get this idea. When the Bible says that something is evil, it's not really some kind of arbitrary decision on God's part. I mean, it's not like God was up there, you know, before creation, uh, wondering, you know what, I wonder what I should call evil and not, you know, like um, uh, uh, stealing. Should that be evil? What do you think, Gabriel? Should that be evil or okay? You know, um, okay, it's evil. Put it in the Ten Commandments. And then what about lying? I wonder if that should be evil. What do you think? Let's throw the dice and Oh, lying's evil too. Goes in the Ten Commandments. And why don't we throw in murder too? That should be evil. It wasn't some arbitrary decision on God's part. Anything that uh, is evil, we call evil in the Bible because it's against God's character. It's against his nature. It's against who he is. So anything that's outside of God's character um, is evil. And, uh, you know, if God just kind of left it there, um, we'd kind of be in a pickle, right? Because we could all kind of maybe agree on that, but we'd all have this dif- um, uh, difference of opinion on what God's character is. And because we're all born with a sinful nature, we really wouldn't be in a good place, right, to, to judge what God's character is and what good and evil is. But I have good news for you. God gave us a self-revelation, It's called the Bible. It's the Word of God. It's God's self-revelation. It describes to us who He is. It describes His character. And so from beginning to end, from Genesis to Revelation, we have this self-revelation of God. God showing us His character, showing us who He is. Now, this morning, because we don't have time to go from Genesis to Revelation, I'm just going to excerpt for you just a few lists of some of the things God said are evil, all right? So let's start with the most famous list of all. Some of the things God said are evil, all right? Uh, the, the Ten Commandments. He says, 
Don't have any other gods before me. Don't make any image of God or any idol. Don't misuse God's name. Remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. Honor your father and mother. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not lie. Do not covet anything of your neighbor's. Not your neighbor's house, his belongings, or spouse, or anything else. All these things, God says, are evil. They're against God's character. Now, someone might ask, Pastor Paul, what are you trying to say this morning? That if you, if you avoid all of these things, or if you keep all of these commandments, that you'll be saved? And the answer, of course, is no, you're not saved by obeying the commandments. You can't save yourself. You can't earn your salvation. We can't be good enough to earn God's forgiveness, right? That's what the cross of Jesus is all about. That's why Jesus died, to fulfill the law so that we could have a righteousness that is by faith in Jesus. And I encourage you to read about that all through the New Testament in the, in the book of Romans. That would be a great study for you to do. But what we're talking about, it's not about earning salvation. It's about recognizing evil for what it is. Now, some might say, you know, Pastor Paul, that's Old Testament. All right, well, let's go to a few things in the New Testament. Look at Colossians chapter 3. He says this. I think it's beginning in verse 1, right? Since then you have been raised with Christ. In other words, since you are in Christ, since Jesus is your Savior, since you have the grace of Jesus in your life, set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. And now here, he's about to give us a list of things that we should avoid, a list of things that are evil. Because you have a relationship with Jesus, because you've been transformed by the grace of Jesus, here's a list of things, he says, that are evil that you should avoid. He says, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. All of things are evil. And then he goes on in verse 6. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming. Now, you used to walk in these ways, in the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourself of all such things as these. And now he's going to give us another list of evil things to avoid. These are things that as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, as someone who has the grace of Jesus in your life, we should avoid because they're contrary to the nature of our loving Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he goes on, he says, rid yourself of anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. And then in Galatians 5, here's another list. He says, uh, he calls these things the acts of the flesh or the acts of the sinful nature. And he says, the acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. And then, and then one more in Timothy. Paul is talking to Timothy chapter 1 verses 9 and 10. And he says this, we also know that the law is made not for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinners, the unholy and irreligious, those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, for those practicing homosexuality, for slave traders and liars and perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. Now, we could go on and on looking at uh, the 
New Testament about the character of God and, and, and discerning what is good and evil. But I want to tie this now back to our main idea. We've, been, we've seen a little bit about what evil is. But Paul said, love does not delight in evil. So why is this here? Why would he be saying these things here? Why, why does he feel like he has to tell these Corinthian believers that love does not delight in evil? I mean, it seems like, shouldn't that be obvious? Especially if you're writing to Christian people, right? Love does not delight in evil. Well, I want you to turn back with me for a minute and look at something that was happening in the Corinthian church. We're going to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Um, and we need to get a little bit of context. That'll help us see why Paul says this to these believers. And uh, how many of you remember the rule of context? Thank you. The rule of context is context rules. Right? You need, if you're going to understand a part of Scripture, you need to understand it in its context. Why is it there? <coughs> and so we see 1 Corinthians 5, starting in verse 1, it says this. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. Okay, he's saying that there's this evil here, and uh, you don't even have to be a Christian to know that this is wrong. Even the pagans know that this is wrong, and they, and they wouldn't tolerate it. And he goes on to say, a man is sleeping with his father's wife. And you are proud. That is, they were happy about it. They were delighting in it. They were delighting in evil. You know, sometimes people get the idea that in order to love, you have to validate evil. That is, you know, if you don't validate evil, that might cause some friction, you know, in a relationship or, or some, temp, uh, some tension. Or people might get upset. It might cause some things that maybe don't feel like love. And sometimes it seems like, and some people get the idea that if we're going to love, we have to validate evil. People may accuse you of being unloving or judgmental. And it's easier just to keep the peace by validating the evil. But look how Paul continues in this passage. This is what the guy who wrote the love chapter says. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this? Put him out of the fellowship? I mean, disfellowship him. Well, I mean, that doesn't sound very loving, does it? Well, and he goes on. He says, for my part, even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit. As one who is present with you in this way, I've already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus on the one who has been doing this. So when you are assembled and I am with you in spirit and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. Now, whoa, hold on a second. Hand him over to Satan. I mean, destruction of his flesh. Now, where's the love in all of that, right? Um, does that sound loving? How is this loving? Well, it comes in the next Phrase. Let's look at it. He says, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of our Lord. Oh, it's about his spirit. It's about salvation. It's about wanting his good for all eternity. Paul can't delight in this evil along with them because he knows that it will make this person miss 
out on salvation on the day of the Lord. Just a few paragraphs later, he says this, Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. He's saying that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, um, he's not talking about here someone who has a momentary lapse. He's not talking about the type of thing where it talks about in 1 John where it says, if you sin and you confess your sin, God is faithful and just and will forgive our sin. All right? He's not talking about sliding in and out of salvation or anything like that. He's talking about delighting in evil. Getting to the place where you're living like one of these things or some of the other things in the scriptures. Living like that. That's a, a picture of someone who has taken these things and said, yeah, whether I know they're wrong or not, or I'm going to say they're not wrong, but I'm going to live like this. This is going to be who I am. And he's, Paul says, those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. And he says that you can, you know, you can claim faith in Jesus like this guy was doing. You can claim the grace of God all day long. But if you live like this, you'll not inherit the kingdom of God. And knowing this, genuine love for this man forbids Paul from delighting along with them in this evil. And, and it should have kept the Corinthians from delighting with it as well. Not because Paul wants to pound the guy or because he wants to punish the guy or because of self-righteousness or anything like that, but because he wants him to be saved. And he can't delight in any of these other evils he's mentioned either, not because he's unloving or because he's self-righteous, but he's not because he wants to stand on some corner and bash somebody with a sign or hit someone over the head with a big Bible. It's because he loves them enough not to delight in evil. And not only that, it's not only about this man. He's also concerned about the broader church. Look at the next verse. He says, your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? He's saying that if you let this go, people are going to start to think, new Christians will think that, hey, this is okay to live like this. And, uh, and more people will be drawn into this. A little leaven leavens the whole patch of dough. And so as we follow this story, we see that what Paul desired, the salvation of this man, actually happened. As you look at Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, we see that the Corinthian body of believers, they followed Paul's instructions here, and this man did repent. And Paul was delighted then to tell them, okay, now that he's repented, restore him. Restore him gently. Um, express love to him. You know, when it says that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life, it doesn't say that he loved us and validate us. Jesus didn't come to, to validate our sin. He came to deal with sin. Jesus', Jesus love doesn't validate sin. It deals with the sin problem. This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and gave himself as an atoning sacrifice for our sin. Jesus' love deals with sin. So, what can we take away from this, from these ideas? Well, one of the ideas I get from this this morning is that sometimes love doesn't feel warm and fuzzy. You know, a lot of times love feels warm and fuzzy, doesn't it? I mean, when someone expresses kindness to you, 
or patience with you or some other expression of love, it feels good inside, right? It feels warm and fuzzy. Am I the only one? You all look at me kind of like, uh, we don't know what you're talking about, Pastor Paul, right? Yeah, it feels good. It feels warm and fuzzy. But there are times in life when love doesn't feel warm and fuzzy. That is, love doesn't delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth in a redemptive way. You know, you probably can't see this this morning. I don't know if you can, but I have a scar right here on my forearm. And uh, a few months, if you can't see it, I'll show it to you after service. Some, some, of, the, some of the junior high boys just love to see a scar, right? So. A few months ago, I went to the dermatologist and, uh, to have him look at this mole that was here. And uh, you know, he told me that the mole was precancerous and it had to be removed or else over time it would metastasize and turn into a much bigger problem. I needed someone, a doctor, to tell me the truth about that mole. And then I needed him to walk with me through the process of dealing with it and, and getting it removed so that I could remain healthy. It wouldn't have been loving for him to just kind of say to me, well, I don't want to dis you know, disturb him or, or cause him any angst or anything like that, so I'm just going to tell him it's all right, you know, and so that he can feel good about it. You know, so that, that wouldn't have been loving. Now, it also wouldn't have been loving for him to say, you know, hey, you've got a mole, and it's going to kill you in a few years. It stinks to be you, you know, but have a nice life, you know, what's left of it. I mean, that would have been truth, right? Some people approach truth that way. Some people uh, confront uh, evil that way with truth. You know, uh, stinks to be you, you're going to hell, you know, and so forth. And, and it comes across like they would be perfectly happy if the, if the earth would open and they just fall right in, right? Um, that's not love, right? Hitting someone over the head with the Bible is not love. But I needed someone to tell me the truth about this and then show me a way out of it and help me through it and give me a process to get, to get all the way through it. And so this is an illustration of what it means when Paul says, love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. Love prohibits us from validating evil. Love compels us to speak the truth about evil in a loving way. And love motivates you to, to walk with people in a redemptive process that leads to spiritual healing and blessing. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices in the truth. So how does this work in a practical sense? Well, well let's just look at a few examples this morning, all right? Imagine with me, it's not too difficult to imagine, I think, a child with an attitude problem. Any of you ever encountered a child with an attitude problem? How many of you were a child with an attitude problem? Okay. Every once in a while, I've seen this situation where there's this child with an obvious ongoing attitude issue, and the adults in this child's life, whether parents or others, you know, kind of just uh, uh, laugh and about it and joke about it, and the behavior just gets kind of reinforced. It gets validated. Has any of you ever noticed that on occasion? Right? And things get validated. Or, uh, and that, but that's not really love. And, you know, it may be warm and even fuzzy and even funny. It may spare feelings in the short term, but it's not really love. Or I've seen instances where a parent or another adult will ignore or avoid an issue because confronting it is difficult. It doesn't feel warm and fuzzy. It doesn't feel loving. Well, that's really not love either. 
Because as a child grows, that attitude problem grows and metastasizes and gets manifested in larger ways uh, and to other people like teachers and employers, and it starts causing a bigger problem. Love requires you to confront the evil with truth and walk with them in a redemptive process that leads to spiritual health. Now, of course, there's a right way and a wrong way to do that, right? Uh, um, the wrong way is with selfish motivations. Uh, the wrong way is with outbursts of anger and with fits of rage, right? That's the wrong way to, to confront evil, right? But there's a right way to do that, a redemptive way that is loving and, and shows the way to spiritual health. Love does not delight in evil but rejoices with the truth. Or how about this one? A child who is stealing and or taking things that don't belong to him. And maybe it seems harmless when they're five years old, right? But if you don't deal with it, when it happens when they're 14 or 15... It may be the police officer or the judge who confronts evil with truth. And they might not have in mind a redemptive process. They might have in mind a justice process. You know, I can remember when I was, uh, something happened when I got to sixth grade. And I just decided I didn't want to do any homework anymore. And from sixth grade, sixth, seventh, eighth grade, uh, I just didn't do any homework. And... I went from getting like all A's to all like C's. I met my, and I would tell my parents, yeah, it's all done. It's all, all my homework's done and all of that. So uh, my parents, I always dreaded like twice a year they'd go to parent-teacher conferences. And the teachers told the truth about me. They would say, Paul's not doing any homework. He never turns in his homework. And my parents would come home and they'd start to tell the truth to me. You know, hey, you told us you were doing your homework, but you're not doing your homework. You know, and uh, now they didn't go all ballistic and flip out and kick me out of the house or anything like that, but they confronted me with the truth. And it was like agony for like three years. I think, I don't know if it was worse for me or them. I'm not sure. But they would lovingly confront me with the truth, and they would say things like, you know, Paul, you've got such potential. If you would just apply yourself, you know, if you just work a little bit, you know, you could do so well. Here you are getting C's without doing any homework. You know, if you had to apply yourself, do this homework. And, and, and I had this problem. Because not only was I being lazy, which is an evil. If you look at the book of Proverbs, right? It talks about being diligent. And I was being lazy. But also now, I was regularly and habitually lying to my parents. Yes, my homework's done. Um, I did it at school. Or I, I did it at study hall. Or I did it before you got home habitually lying and being lazy. It was evil. And my parents wouldn't have done me any favors. It would not have been love to just like, okay, let's keep the peace and not do anything about this. They lovingly confronted me and said, you know what? You need to shape up. Or, or, or you know, one day you, you, you know, you're going to be on your own. And something clicked when I got into high school. And I don't know what happened, but something clicked. And I just said, you know what? I need to shape up. I think they're right. I finally shaped up, got good grades in high school, and went on, and, and, and God's been blessing and all of that ever since. And, uh, uh, but they lovingly confronted me with that truth. Love does not rejoice in evil, doesn't validate evil, but rejoices with the truth. You know, if a teenager is manifesting bad attitudes or negative evil behavior, it's not loving to ignore it or placate it or encourage it or delight in it. Love requires you to confront the evil. They may resist you, They may become upset with you. They may accuse you of not loving them and not trusting you. They may even slam the door and scream, I hate you. But the Bible says what? Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he's old, he will not depart from it. 
Love requires us to confront evil with the truth and engage in a redemptive, loving process that leads to spiritual health and life. Now, those are some examples of confronting truth in family. We can give a lot of other ones, too. Like sometimes uh, there have been times where people have uh, been involved in some addiction or something, and a and family, or member, a family member or family members need to lovingly confront them, help them get the help that they need, right? Not let them go on. It's not loving to let them go on forever in those kinds of addictions, right? But how about some situations that maybe society foists on us, that society forces upon us, that we sometimes have to deal with? as Christians and as, as believers. <clears throat> we could talk about many. Let's just talk about one this morning. You know, abortion seems to have pushed itself to the front again, hasn't it? Seems to be front and center stage again. And, uh, you know, I'm not sure it's ever not front and center for God because he's an eyewitness of so many abortions every single day. And I don't know if you've noticed, but there's been this push in, in some state governments to legalize abortion all the way up until the moment, and some say even after the moment of birth. And can I just say something? This is appalling. It's appalling. And many of you probably saw the clip of the New York State legislature when they applauded and cheered and rejoiced when this passed. I can't join them. I can't delight in that evil. Love doesn't delight in evil. But so what does this mean for us and for love? How do we confront this issue in a loving and redemptive way? Like, how do we love a woman or a girl who suddenly is in a crisis situation and is thinking about an abortion? How do we love that person? What does it mean to love a young woman or girl who shows up in church in a crisis pregnancy situation and is thinking about an abortion? Well, first, I mean, love doesn't delight in evil but rejoices with the truth. So it wouldn't be really God's love to say, well, you know what, I don't want to hurt your feelings, so you know, go ahead, honey, and, and go ahead and have that abortion. That wouldn't be love. And at the same time, it wouldn't be love to say, hey, hey, honey, you reap what you sow. Just deal with it, right, and get all self-righteous, right? That really wouldn't be love either. So what does love look like? And maybe sometimes, you know, when we can't validate the behavior that led to the pregnancy, but we can rejoice with the truth that this young woman and her baby are loved and precious to God, right? We cannot delight in the idea of ending this life um, or that it's a good course of action. We must confront the idea with this truth that, you know, abortion ends a human life, that it's taking what, what is reserved for God. It's, it's murder in God's eyes. But that's not the only truth that we confront it with. Here's some more truth that we confront this evil with. Your life is not over. God still loves you. God loves your baby. God has a plan for you to move forward. It may seem dark and bleak and like there's no way forward, but um, God has a plan for you, and he wants to walk with you in this. God can bring beauty from ashes and will help, or will connect you with people who can help you if you want to get through this and help you get through this process. It may not be easy. It may be difficult. It may not always feel warm and fuzzy. And you know what? When you do this, there may be people who insist that you, that, that you hate women or, or as you confront this, but um, the Bible says we have to do what? Confront evil with the truth in a loving and redemptive way. You know, we could go on with all sorts of other uh, sins and evil that our, our society confronts it with. But as we get ready to conclude this morning, I just kind of have this thought. 
What if, you know, when that doctor told me about that mole, what if I reacted differently? I mean, I could have said, you know, Doc, that, that, that mole's a part of me. How dare you suggest I remove it? I could have said, you know, Doc, it, it's just, the thing's just not bothering me right now. I don't have any pain. It's not causing me any difficulty in my life. I can manage it. Why should I let you stick a bunch of needles in me and take a knife and cut me and leave me with stitches and, and then have to take some antibiotics and, and uh, some painkillers? I mean, th- there's this whole process that seems really inconvenient for me right now. But the truth is, if I had done that, that mold would eventually kill me. And the truth is that living in sin, following a path of sin, following a path of evil will kill you spiritually. You know, and it may be true that, that dealing with it can be inconvenient. It kind of messes up your life a little bit. It causes you to stop and change a few things. It may be interruptive. It may be difficult. There may be some pain involved with it. There may be even a scar left afterwards. But there will also be healing and spiritual health and grace from God in your life. Would you all bow your heads with me?